0: oftentimes enlightening and informative and above all else deeply human for tuning into this episode of give and take my guest is tony jones he's the author of several books including did god kill jesus and is the host of the reverend hunter podcast and co-host of the killer serial podcast He's a great guy and an old friend, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I give you Tony Jones. Tony Jones, welcome to the podcast, my friend.
1: Man, it, I have begged you for so long to come on your podcast. I think I've been on other podcasts of yours. Maybe I've been on this one back in the day, like when I had a book to promote. I think yeah, that's I think, possible.
0: I think we ha- I had you on for a book promo, I think. Yeah. I'm which surprised is, you don't I, remember
1: I, it. I'm surprised you don't remember it because I'm sure it was your most downloaded episode. Absolutely, it was. Of course it was.
0: But you wrote, it's interesting because you have, I see it in the corner there um, yeah. of your desk, Did God Kill Jesus? And I think you you make a point in that book, which I think is so kind of salient and relatively simple and clear that like basically the way i read that book is like if your atonement whatever understanding you have of what happens on the cross if it's something like jesus died so that god can love us that's bad if it's more like because god loves us jesus died you can have all manner of atonement theories right but you kind of you you look at the third, god is love hermeneutic and somehow if that if that if god if if god is love you can Talk about substitution. You can talk about victory. You can talk about example. But if God has to be sort of wooed into loving, or or has if there's a mechanism that has to start the love kind of train going, that 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 any theory will just fall apart and and really be deleterious to someone's spirituality.
1: Yeah, don't you think that one of the fallacies you hear Christians talking about is that they don't have a canon within the canon? Everybody does. Yeah. People are like, oh no, I read all scripture equally. <laughs> whatever. No, we all have, we pick uh, a primary hermeneutical lens and we read all of scripture through that. Now, if that happens to be that, you know, the, the Romans road or whatever, Romans 1 through 8 and this very forensic litigious version of Christianity, you're going to read everything else through that. If it's going to be, if if you're Shane Claiborne and you read everything through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, that Jesus is really all about lifting up the downtrodden and helping out those who are suffering, you're going to read everything through that. And I guess I just picked, yeah, like you say, the sermeneutic of God of, is love, um, kind of the Shema uh, or as the, you know, as the primary lens. Then you just think, well, why would you embrace a version of the atonement in which God isn't love, in which God is wrath? You know, God's primary characteristic is that he's super pissed off at human beings for failing him, even though in that system it's all based on God's sovereignty, which means God knew from the get go that we were going to fail him, <laughs> but he's still pissed about it. Yeah,
0: it's a, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it's a strange, it's a strange thing, right? And he, and even Calvin, you read like you know the 16th century reformer John Calvin's commentary on First John when it says, "While we were s- still enemies, you know, God," died. and Calvin's like, "Well, I mean, of course, this is rhetorical because we have no incarnation if we were enemies. There wouldn't, you know, like so even right. it, you kind of so it's interesting. The first time I ever was exposed to your work, you, you wrote a book years ago called Postmodern Youth Ministry. I remember reading it and I thought. I was doing youth ministry at the time, and I thought this is really interesting because it's the, it was the most theological youth ministry book I had ever read. Like, I mean, you you, you it was not this kind of a, a lot of books about for churches for they're geared at people in churches that are working with young people are are sort of atheological, right? It's here's here's how you make the program, here's how you get people in the baseball diamond or something. This was I, I I was really into it. I remember I remember meeting you at Princeton. I was like Tony, tell tell just you wrote this book. I, that, I I really appreciated that book. I mean that was that that was your first kind of uh wading into theological writing right
1: well first of all i'll say i have a very vivid memory of the first time we met like i remember where i was sitting in the whatever it's called the phd library in
0: the computer suite you were in the computer yeah i remember. Yeah, it was you
1: like, were, like you, you walk into yeah. the suite and it was over on the right there were like these carols kind of it, it 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 was it was uh and i i was like i vividly remember standing in the doorway and you coming up and introducing yourself to me because you're a, you're like uh you have a big i mean i think you and i both we there's it's a big presence we bring a big presence people notice us in
0: the room people notice us in the room
1: yeah there's a kind of an electricity or an authority or whatever the that, that, an energy that we bring with, with us and so i just remember that energy like being confronted with that energy of yours and obviously we uh, we became friends over our shared time at Princeton during which quite honestly both of us went through some trials like some personal yeah, re- yeah. relational trials while we were overlapping there um yeah the school of suffering bonds people
0: right i mean it's an interesting oh, yeah. thing yeah. and and you learn you do learn um who your friends are by how, who sure. re- who respond how people respond in suffering i think it's an interesting yeah. uh uh, kind of thing. where we're when things are going great. I mean, not that people aren't your friends, but you, but it it doesn't really cost anybody anything to be a friend when the when things are fair weather, right? But but it's when uh, things are hard that actually friendship can be costly and and challenging.
1: Well, and you also you know, there's so much in in stuff that you and I have both read uh, in postmodern philosophy. Which gets back to you know that first book I wrote. Um, you think about Derrida writing about the gift, and there is no such thing as a gift. There's no such thing as an unconditional gift that's given when the giver is known. Um, I think his work on the gi- on gift is brilliant, and it it's helped me to understand, I guess, um, the abandonment I felt from some people when I no longer had power. So I no longer really had anything to offer people. Like I went from being a guy who could help people get book contracts and speaking gigs and, you know, uh, had a, had a blog that was read by a lot of people and stuff like that. Having that all go away, I, the, the friendships that were contingent upon what I had to offer materially to someone's life when that, ended you do really yeah you i'm and i'm not casting aspersions on those people because i'm sure i've done the same thing sure other sure,
0: sure sure
1: you know when i was climbing the ladder when i was in my 30s i'm sure that i made judgments about how valuable someone would be to my advancement and didn't really follow up on the friendships that weren't uh but now in my 50s having lost do you most Blanc- of that you know yeah
0: do you remember blogging too? Like I, I maybe podcasts and stuff are the, is kind of the new and social, in a certain sort of social media are the new blogging, but remember, like I remember when you were blogging and people like you would write stuff and it generated a lot. I mean, the blog, the blogosphere was a really interesting time when people, that was a, a, a way for a lot of people religious and non-religious. Like that was the currency and exchange of ideas where, it, and it was kind of, a, it, it was intense, right? I mean, you, you, you looked for a new blog post and you were, you know you would i mean you got me into blogging for a while and i i was you know writing and, just, and and it was an interesting i mean i i think it's kind of there's not the excitement around it anymore um it it, it seems like i mean there's some i mean i'm sure some of it but it's just it seems like most of the splashes are not made there i guess they're made more on the youtube and through podcasts and stuff but that time was really interesting and exciting
1: oh my gosh I, you know if there's if if i ever when when i read about how um You know, Facebook is designed or Twitter is designed to um, cause chemical, you know, euphoric style chemical reactions in your brain when you see you have a notification or when you post something on Facebook that gets a lot of likes or something. I remember that feeling from blogging. You know, I would write... There was a time... I I blogged for 10 years and I started when we were at Princeton together, particularly when I was living alone after my family left Princeton and um, you know, I, I remember I when had,
0: your blog post was titled, Oh, Jürgen, I love it when you do that. You were like working on <laughs> Moatmire. I
1: remember when he, <laughs> I, you were working through I, like the Trinity and the kingdom or something, dude. I mean, you know that you remember that married student housing. I had a, uh, you know, they didn't allow you at Princeton. If you were married, you couldn't live in the dorms which were much cheaper. And this is the crazy like um Kafka S bureaucracy of Princeton Seminary is that I was married, okay, but my family had left and moved back to Minnesota. And but they wouldn't let me move into like what was it called Witherspoon or what was the new dorm? Oh uh, yeah, dude. Yeah, those yeah, those dorms that were awesome. Like yeah, I mean They'd- they wouldn't even though my family had abandoned me they were like you're married you have to live in married student housing so i lived in one of those crappy squat apartment what were those buildings called i can't remember
0: uh sure, i forget but yeah no 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 i remember I had, yeah yeah
1: dude i had a, I, I found a door an a, an old door out by a dumpster and i set it up on sawhorses and had a laptop on there and i slept on an air mattress do you, that was, Do you know what's funny? you know That was my that? life.
0: Mike Allen the guy that says he, he the getting things done guy. I think it's Mike Allen. The getting things done like got productivity guy. He says about doors. He's like most CEOs don't have a functional workspace. And so I always say like I could make a CEO a better workspace than they have with a couple cinder blocks and a door. And you just put the cords, right? <laughs> but
1: because yeah, you, yeah,
0: you put the yeah. cords through the through the Hole for the, for the, <laughs> the knob handle. hole, yeah. And it's like that's a more functional workspace than a lot of the consulting big CEOs I see have. That's like, because it's big, right? It, it yeah. it's clear, and, and you can kind of just you know.
1: Well, I had nothing. I mean, I I started blogging just out of a function of a couple things, probably boredom and loneliness, but also because, as you know, when there, there's like no more fertile time in someone's life than when they're doing coursework in a PhD program. Um, because you're just you're reading stuff and you just I just felt a need to process it. So I wrote about it. And, uh, you know, going back to like the endorphin rush, I remember, you know, I would write something that started getting a lot of comments and you'd go back and you'd be like, Holy shit! I have there forty three comments under that post, and then you you know you go to class, and then you come back. You are like no, there is eighty comments under that. Like it's taking off, and this was before people weren't sharing it on Twitter or Facebook. You know, it was like people were reading it in their Google Reader or their blog aggregator, and they just liked the content. So it was great. I would say for me, looking back on blogging. You know, I got away from the more intellectual stuff and got as I became paid to be blog to blog by BeliefNet and then by Pathios, You get paid based on page views, and I got more page views when I wrote about Mark Driscoll than I when I wrote about Jürgen. Right, Malmo. right, right, right. So I started blogging more about Mark Driscoll. I mean, people. Maybe don't remember this, but like the way Rachel Held Evans became famous is she trolled Mark Driscoll on her blog. Like that's that was what blew her up. Dude, and so many
0: people have Mark Driscoll to thank for their success.
1: <laughs> and so, I mean, Rachel became obviously a very gentle, sweet, encouraging human being, but she started out by trolling uh, this misogynistic Calvinist on on and uh, driving him a little crazy. And so, anyway, those day, early days of blogging—that well, yeah, you're right, man. It was it was a fascinating time. I learned a ton about thinking, um, a, a ton about presenting my arguments in short form, and that was really the time too where I became very disenfranchised with the academy because I was like, I'm reaching way more people than any of these professors by by writing out in popular form the stuff that I'm. Like I'm doing more to popularize uh, Jacques Derrida or Jürgen Moltmann than all, th- all these professors combined at all these institutions.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I've had a guy... I just had a guy on the podcast, Ed Watts, and he's a, he's a great guy. He's an ancient historian, and he, he loves coming on the show, and he's written interesting stuff about the ancient Roman Republic and and kind of the fragility of it and, and and how it relates to our time. But he said to me, like, coming on the show is great because it sharpens me. He's like, I mm-hmm. it's a different... Yeah context to process, you know, he's like, you ask good questions and we go back and forth. And he's like, but it actually, it gets me th- thinking in a more sort of broader context for communication than, than I mean, it just, in the academy just, I feel like the way the academy works, right, is you you use idiosyncratic language to maximize difference, right? So we're both in Proust, studying Proust, right? And nobody would know the difference between our two views, but I'm saying you have to choose your view of Proust or my view of Proust and we use these words that nobody understands to talk about where so much of life is trying to to find a common language to collaborate and bridge difference, right? And in, in 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 religion or industry, I mean, often. It's, so it's funny because in the academy, you're doing something that is often. Counterproductive to any other success in any other endeavor.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, think about like even, uh, and you're way more of an expert at this than me. I'm, I may, I may, I'm mainly just echoing what you've told me over the years, but like your department at Princeton Seminary, where all these guys are Bardian theologians, but they all think the other guy totally misunderstands Bart. <laughs>
0: Right, right, this, right. Again, you, you, ha- yeah, exactly. You, ha- you have these views, these arguments that that, that the normal world. It's, it's like that scene in Ghostbusters too, where like uh, he's like, "Ray, you're scaring the straights in the room." <laughs> like when they come in, like, but it is like they're scaring the normal people. I mean, normal people just don't like. It, it, there's not this kind of uh, interpretive intensity over these kind of. And again, like I'm not. It's not an anti-intellectual point. I mean, because there is, I think, a place for deep, nuanced reading of stuff, but like. The problem is if if you can't come up from the deep dive,
1: yeah, I think what's what your value to, of, what's yeah. the value of it yeah you you have to be at least enough grounded in reality or um or kind of popular culture to be able to step back and look around at your colleagues at the departmental meeting and be like, "Do you think we've maybe lost the thread a little bit on our disagreements over who's right about Bart? maybe we should you know." recalibrate our posture toward the outside world on this stuff um really that first book of mine you know i had a great honor that i just tripped or lucked into you know of going to fuller seminary in the early 90s at a time where i got to study uh with miroslav wolf before anyone had heard of him you know and uh jim mcclendon an anabaptist postmodernist narrative theologian at the end of his career and most influential on me was Nancy Murphy who is a f- Christian philosopher who had we just did a ton of work on on like the in the anglo-american uh postmodern tradition i mean we're reading Wittgenstein and J L Austin and Willard, Van Orman, Quine. I mean, who, who's reading that in an MDiv program in the early 90s, you know? Yeah,
0: that's three fascinating figures that you're talking about there, to McClendon, Murphy, and, and Miroslav Volf. I mean, these are right. people that are were ahead of their time. I mean, Wolf, I mean, I think Volf is probably the best North American public theologian we have now. I mean, he actually really does public theology, writes interesting things that are theologically robust, but he writes them for the wider culture, which I just... It seems to me a lot of theologians don't do anymore.
1: No, it's very rare. And I, you know, I spent a, I spent uh, about ten years in the publishing industry, and you, you, there are a lot of young aspiring theologians and and biblical scholars who want to be like. And you could just name them. It's it's a very short list. It's Wolf, It's Brugemann. It's Howarwas. It's it's NT Wright. They're like, I want to do work that is. Uh, respected in the academy but reaches a popular audience and i don't know if that's h- how possible that even is anymore because of the demands of the academy to do such finely grained work in order to get tenure to publish your monographs to have your papers read at the guild meeting yeah, and,
0: and the more specialized you are the more one-dimensional you are, the better your res your, your CV your resume looks at the thing. So it kind of it's a self-perpetuating system. So you don't kind of get points. You're right. You don't get points for being the person that's actually a public intellectual. You know you
1: yeah, you know right. Actually like, not. Those like don't. Cornell that West. doesn't get factored into your tenure review.
0: Right. Unless you're Cornell West and you're just so prolific that you can do academic stuff and do all that stuff. I mean, it, it, but very few people... I mean, it, it, it the ledger is not weighed towards people that are actually contributing publicly.
1: Right, but Scott, all these people we've... Na- this is what I'm wondering, like, the, these are all... Wolf is the youngest person in this group of people we've named. I, I don't know how old Cornell West is, but, like, Wolf is in his 60s, and probably, what, West is in his 60s, and the rest of the guys are in their 70s and 80s. Uh, the question is, c- could a 30-, 30, 35-year-old right now... Do that on both tracks where Hauerwas is writing, you know, um, uh, theological essays and treatises, but he's also writing Resident Aliens, which is like a Christian bestseller with with a pastor, you know, and a preacher uh, um, with Will Williman. Like, could you do that today? I think it would be I, I don't know, fingers crossed, but I think it's super difficult to do that. And what I was trying to do in postmodern youth ministry was like, I got, I had this great education and then I was in the parish doing ministry and finding the stuff I had studied so helpful. And I thought, well, if this, if, 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 uh, Wittgenstein, if like language theory is helping me do ministry, I need to test this in the public square. Am I just fooling myself or will this be like, is this actually helpful for the practice of youth ministry? And if I would have been a missions pastor, it would have been called Postmodern Missions instead of postmodern youth ministry. You know what I'm saying? It was just an attempt to take the stuff I had learned and then how and then take how I was practicing it and basically test it.
0: And it was a book that I remember reading it and I was in seminary, I think, and I was doing youth work and it was a follow the footnotes thing too. Like I, I went to Pittsburgh seminary and we had a great library, you know, one of the yeah, best yeah. theological libraries in the country. And it was a book that, like, I what I loved about it is I could follow the footnotes. And so it helped me kind of, um, it, it was one of those things where it gave me a lot of good questions, too. I mean, it was just a really unique kind of piece of work that I had not, I hadn't seen anything like it before. And, that, and that's why I remember meeting you. I was like, dude, I, I remember you in the street. I was like, you wrote this great book. That was really, because it was an important book for me. I mean, it was something that really, like, sparked me intellectually at the time. When, again, I was a practitioner and trying to think through that stuff and there was not a lot of the literature that was representative like that that was like from a practitioner that was thinking uh you know intellectually in a rigorous way about their own discipline so shifting gears i want to talk to you about your podcast yeah the reverend hunter and this is podcasting is an interesting thing right because it's it is maybe this new form of of blogging or something i find a lot of kind of conversations that are the kind of intensity that like, whatever, I, how many ever years ago we were at Princeton and stuff, the kind of intensity where people are commenting on the things on this stuff. I find that becomes sort of in the, in the podcast sphere and, and YouTube and live streaming stuff. So like that seems to be the place where now there's a lot of intellectual energy around exchanges and dialogue. So you have this thing, the Reverend Hunter, where you are a hunter, you are an outdoorsman and you're, and you are a member of you know, the clergy, the ministry. And so you're this, you're this hunter that is, you know, this kind of a, what are you like a Christianized Thoreau now you're going out there and (laughs) what are you? This is interesting to me.
1: Um, you know, it's not, there, there are similar threads with the book postmodern youth ministry because, uh, after I went through a huge like life trauma crisis, that basically stripped away everything that I had built in my career for 25 years. And I was left with very little. Um, the one thing that was giving me solace and comfort was hunting. Because, you know, there, there there are obviously some friends like you who stuck by me through tough times. There's a lot of others who didn't. And um, there was a lot of stuff written about me on the internet. But when I would go out to South Dakota and hunt... These guys didn't give a shit what was about me on the internet. You know like yeah. yeah. They did not care. They were like Tony's a good hunter. He's a safe with his gun. He's got a good dog. It it's it's um it was very simple what they were looking for. And so there was that aspect of it of just I was with guys who, you know, I don't agree with I don't agree with them theologically, I don't agree with them politically. They didn't care. They 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 loved me for who I was. Um, and isn't that liberating for a space in the culture where it's not
0: politicized and tribalized? Like it, I mean, it because you know it's like I just want to go to Chick Fil A and eat my sandwich. I don't want to think about yeah what the implications are for my chicken sandwich or everything. But that, but that is where we live, right? Where every it seems like every square inch of public and private life is so politicized and so hyper, tribally cut up. And so like the fact that you could go out with people and like have a different differences of opinion, but didn't matter because this space wasn't politicized is 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 a, a liberative thing, right? I mean, there's freedom in
1: there. It's rare. It's rare. And I do, there was a funny time, um, you know, I had been hunting in South Dakota in 2016 in like October, pheasant hunting. And then I went back out in, I think the first week of November. And I remember walking into Shorty's diner in Platte, South Dakota, and you walk in and like half the place is in blaze orange. You know, there's a couple Bible studies going on and then it's a bunch of pheasant hunters. And as I, I walked in, I'm, I'm in my blaze orange, you know, we're ready to, getting ready to go out to hunt and going to have some pancakes first. And I walk in and this whole table anyway, blaze,
0: of my, blaze orange sounds like an adult film stars
1: here here we go feature
0: this 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 uh this this adult film features blaze orange i'm picturing a guy with orange hair
1: probably yeah i could see it yeah this whole table of guys my buddies they turn to me hillary they all start calling me hillary they think it's hilarious (laughs) because of course two months earlier we'd been out there and i've been like look you guys i'm really sorry to break it to you but trump's gonna get destroyed hillary's gonna win in a landslide it's not even gonna be close you know I'm so sorry that I know you guys hate Hillary, but she's going to be your next president. And then here it was two months later, and they called me Hillary all through breakfast. And we, you know, we laughed about it. Nobody was as dire as the situation might have felt for me or for some of my friends. It, It was in some ways depoliticized as you say even though we were joking about politics it, it wasn't um it wasn't going to be the identifying marker for our hunt you know or for our um for us as human beings so there's that whole aspect of the hunt for I, I, me. Do say, I, I do want yeah. to say i do want to
0: say before you move on before i just want to i do think that people say like that the press and the polls missed it. I mean, you weren't wrong. I mean, the polls were right. Like she won by yeah, the margin. She did win. Yeah, th- that the poll said and it seventy thousand votes in three states, which again, this is margin of error stuff. If she gets those votes, she has a modern kind of um, big victory. I mean, like it, it's you know, I mean, it's it is interesting because I think the whole idea that like everybody got it wrong. That's really overstated. I mean, then the popular vote, they did not get wrong at all. And again, in in three swing states, 70,000 votes tipped the electoral college one way. It's not like everybody was clueless. It was just it it was close.
1: Yeah. Nate Silver has repeatedly said this. He's like, you know, we predicted on 538 that Trump had about a 30 percent chance of winning. And everybody thought, well, that means he's not going to win because, you know, but a 30 percent chance is still like three and. Three in 10 alternate universes, Trump wins that election. Um, And you do think it's crazy to think that there's some little thing like the Comey letter or if Hillary would have gone to Wisconsin or, you know, there's any one little thing could have tipped that the other way. And you wonder if there's an alternate universe somewhere where Hillary did visit Wisconsin and she's now the president. You know, it, it was that close like you say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, and, that, and that was the one of the worst run campaigns too. I mean, Hillary spent a lot of money. It was, I don't know why she just didn't hire everybody that Obama had.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. I know. Got, got just destroyed by, I mean, yeah. Or R- Russia or whatever it is. It, it's, uh, I mean, who knows? But I was going to say the other thing about hunting, that's the more obvious thing probably for people is that, I'm outside, you know, like I'm in nature. And I, it's funny that the kind of things that I think about as a result of being a hunter, I never talked about when I was a pastor. Like what we mean? talk, well, for instance, Scott, we, one of the things hunters talk about all the time is ethics. So yeah. there's all sorts of ethics about the ethics of fair chase of an animal, um, how you track down a wounded animal. Uh, what equipment is fair to use to try to take an animal. It's it's very interesting. Like you listen to hunting podcasts, they're constantly talking about the ethics of fair chase. And you just never really, I just, ne- like when I was a church pastor, we never talked about ethics. I mean, I took classes on ethics in, in my MDiv and in my PhD, but never like when I was a pastor, we didn't sit around and say like, are we running this church in an ethical manner? Hmm. That was just never a conversation we had. Um, and then you also have all these conversations, and and I have personal reflections on stuff like eating meat and the violence implicit in the act of eating meat. And I don't remember what, in in all my years of of listening to sermons. I ne- and and look, you, you're sitting in a. You're sitting in a, in a congregation surrounded by people who are carnivores. They're all eating meat. You never hear a sermon ever about, let's talk about eating meat. Like, what is that? Th- this is one thing that every one of us does multiple times per day. What are the ethical, what are the Christian implications in the act of eating meat?
0: When I started reading Carl Barton Seminary, it was a Bart reading course, and we read this great twentieth-century theologian. For people who don't know him, um, one of the, you know one of the great modern Christian thinkers, and he, we read in his Ethics of Creation. He has a whole section on vegetarianism and
1: should we? No kidding.
0: Be, yeah, it's amazing. I, I mean, and but he talks about how basically, you know, at, he 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 says that uh, above every. Butcher and vivisectionist shop should have Romans 8, 23, all of creation groans for redemption. And he talks about like how basically we have to protect life. And yet he thinks vegetarianism is kind of over-realized, you know, what theologians call eschatology. It's too much kingdom now. It's too much like the lion doesn't yet lay down with lamb. But he has this really sophisticated discussion of... Of 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 this of hunt of hunting and 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 animal. I mean it's it's. Inc- I mean it's incredible uh, it, it, the nuance and, and 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 deliberateness with which he treats this issue is unbelievable. And and again, you're right. Like you never hear it talked about. And, and here I was reading him at that time, and I was like, wow, this is unlike any theologian I've read. I mean, this is really interesting that he's actually really thinking about these things. <laughs>
1: Okay, I'm gonna ha- we're gonna I'm gonna have you reread that section, and I'm gonna read it, and then I'm gonna have you on my Reverend Hunter podcast to talk about it because that would be fascinating. To-
0: he also has in the same section, like because it's all about like his ethics of creation. He's thinking as a Christian, but he's thinking like, but what do Christians do that everybody else does? So, but how do we do them Christian? Yeah. Like, how do you like neighbor, late neighborliness, and being parent, you know, parents and 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 being um, children and all this stuff. He has this great section of the ethics of illness. And he says, the first thing that ethically is required of you as a Christian when you're ill is to conjure up, is to, to, to get in your mind the notion that God is not using this illness to judge you, that Christ the judge has kind of been judged in your place. And so you, you can't. So it's just a fascinating kind of, uh, it's just fascinating I mean he, he, his nuance on these issues is like and, and that's where I kind of fell in love with Bardo I was like wow this guy's like got the Bible open he's got psychologists he's got he he's, he's reading everything in the 20th century intellectual kind of marketplace and and throwing all this into a Christian view of what it means to be a human I thought this this is this is like made me want to it made me want to study theology
1: well there was something about him like that was a break wasn't that wouldn't you say I mean there were probably other things Theologians who were doing that, but the other theologians who were who were doing that were more being led by culture. He had he had some brilliance at not giving up theological orthodoxy while letting cultural um, you know uh, uh, cultural imports uh, affect his theology.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know one of the things that I think he was trying to do right is he had this insight from another guy friedrich schleiermacher and a lot of, it was 19th century early early 19th century um german theologian and a lot of people look at these guys as as arch nemeses and, and i think they they actually had the same goal and their goal was theology needs to stand on its own two feet it can't borrow from philosophy or psychology or, it can use those things but it can't find its 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 raison d'etre right its reason for being can't be in some other discipline and it needs to actually uh and it's funny because i remember taught you know i taught it was a ta for this guy jeff stout at princeton university who you know yeah I mean, jeff just the best teacher I ever worked brilliant. in my life brilliant. i'm just brilliant um and he was an atheist and i said jeff you not only as an atheist you read theology but you read like orthodox theology you read like walter store from Karl Barth and all these things i said why he said well you know when i'm reading kind of traditional like we think as liberal theology, like in this tradition of sort of trying to accommodate the culture, he's like, I think I'm reading, I feel like I'm just reading bad sociology, bad psychology, bad critical theory, or bad. Fo-. And he's like, I'm arguably at the best university in the world. I can not just read, but talk to the best critical theorists. He's like, when I'm reading Christian theology that's distinctly Christian, there's a voice there that I can't get anywhere else that is important in the public conversation, a theological voice. And I, I re- I still remember I think we were in the, the we were at the uh, we were at a diner in Princeton or something with the other TAs and I just thought that's the most interesting answer from an atheist why they read kind of robustly orthodox Christian theology because there's a voice that theology gives to the public conversation that you can't you can't find anywhere and if you accommodate too much not that we shouldn't be relevant and contextual like we were saying before where you're you're speaking to wider cultural issues and problems but it, but when you kind of give up your theological credentials right then you don't have anything unique to bring to the table.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, and, and it's also, I I have that exa- exact same experience as he does working with, in practical theology, there are a lot of more progressive theologians who you just read their stuff, and you're like, this is just kind of amateurish psychology or amateurish sociology. Why don't you do what you're good at and what you're trained for, as opposed to uh, trying to co-opt other disciplines and make them relevant in theology, and I think a lot of it's because, of course, in in progressive theology, particularly in the academy, there is a reluctance to talk about a, the agency of the divine or the activity of the divine. Don't you think? I mean, that so when you
0: shy away from that, I found what, when I would be at the Princeton Religion Department, Ta, I felt that you were you could be. More you could be less shy about being a confessional Christian in the religion department at Princeton University than you could at the seminary. like I, I, there was something about Princeton Seminary that, that there's this kind of in the I don't know if it's in the shadow of the university. there was a shyness about uh, god and and being a christian and self-identified confession as a Christian that you didn't i mean, Jeff stout didn't care if you were a confessional Christian in the religion department. He thought it was great. he, he and he thought other things were great too he he you know, I remember when they tried to our friend Eric Gregory who got this ethics job there and Jeff defended him when all these people we can he he he's a traditional Christian. He's like, "What well, you don't have normative commitments?" And and as, as an right. Islamist right. or you know, we all have normative commitments. Why are his off the table? You know, like and so that I mean, I think that that it, it, I totally agree with you. I think my experience oftentimes in in the, that kind of seminary academy, PhD world was like oh my gosh, it was so refreshing to just go to the university where I could just be a Christian. You know? <laughs> and, it, and it was fun. It was interesting. I was in the mix with everybody. Whereas I felt like there was a corporate embarrassment, a, a, a mild kind of corporate embarrassment at, at a place like Princeton Seminary about being a Christian.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Like in order to be taken seriously in the academy, we have to pretend like we don't have these th- Uh, faith commitments and what's but what here's here's another thing though that that makes me think of is because i went to a secular college and i remember being told in youth group before i left um oh they hate christians at ivy league schools you're gonna get destroyed you know and then i got to that ivy league school and i was told the same thing by which was
0: dartmouth right
1: it was Dartmouth, yeah what and I was told the same You're thing so by-
0: your schoolmate Robert J. Gagnon, Robert a J. Gagnon from Pittsburgh Seminary, well formerly uh, Pittsburgh Seminary. Yeah,
1: yeah 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 i there's a few i i is in Dartmouth's history, you know uh Dinesh de Souza had left there just a couple of years before I got there and et cetera, but um campus Crusade used the same line on us like don't take any classes in the dartmouth religion department they hate christians you know um the philosophy department hates christians etc and then i got into those departments and it wasn't true at all like there were there were was uh, among my best classes were uh, in the religion department from a guy who had been a catholic priest um and he was just absolutely brilliant and taught me extraordinary amounts. I took a class called the theology of Augustine and another class called the theology of Aquinas from this guy. And it it changed my life. So I don't, yeah, I mean, I had the same, ex- I never went over to Princeton university when I was at the seminary like you did. I wish I would have looking back. Of course, I wish I would have, um, but I did have that experience at Dartmouth college. It was not hostile To faith, what it was hostile to was unthinking faith. It was it was hostile to fideism, but I find a ton of fideism in the in the seminary academy too. It's just a different kind of fideism.
0: Yeah, by fideism or fideism, we're talking about for people who aren't in this kind of world, and and the listenership here is broad, so you know it's not you know some people don't know these kind of theological terms, but it's this sort of idea that like. Everything just comes by faith alone and you don't critically examine, um, you know, you you don't critically examine the assumptions of your faith. You just kind of, the, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Although there is a kind of tradition though, right, where I think faith seeking understanding where you realize that like, look, you can't know anything without faith. You know, like you can't. This is like Leslie Newbegin's great book, right? Proper confidence, where he says, you know, faith is the way um, to knowledge because you're not going to go and as a sophomore in high school and say, I won't not going to look at the chemistry test textbook until I do all the experiments myself. You kind of have to trust the textbook, right? But then he says, but doubt is the way to the truth and so you have to also this complex thing of faith and doubt gets you knowledge and then and then sifts out the true from the false knowledge and his last chapter is certainty is the way to nihilism and, and like if if you're if you require certainty you will become a nihilist right because there is no i mean i guess if god would want it, you know whoever our creators if they'd wanted us to be if god would want us to be certain we would have been wired differently because human life is so finite fragile perspectival that all we have is is this dance right between faith and doubt to find the truth and and you can and you can doubt any of your assumptions but you can't doubt all of them at the same time so you're always kind of you know in this uh i I mean this uh, this scholar of the pandemic has said you know this whole everything we know about pandemics is hammer and dance so you we're in the hammer mode now lockdown and then you you let people out a little bit right for the dance and then if it gets bad you hammer again but that's sort of the faith doubt dynamic right nobody i mean you, you, all we can do is is believe in doubt if we're if we're wandering our way into the truth
1: yeah, uh you know I, I, it might have been newbegin who uh, uh, whom I read at Fuller under Nancy Murphy and jim McClendon, um who got this inside my head, but if there was one thing that I tried to that that that, that I guess I will take credit for in the emergent the ten year run of the emergent church movement. Is this idea of epistemic humility that I that I think must have come mainly from Newbegin and and from like the Gospel and Our Culture Network and those guys? But it was that um, there was so much certainty in the evangelical church, and that if we were gonna if there was gonna be one characteristic I wanted in the DNA of the of the church that was going to emerge out of that, it was going to be some kind of epistemic humility that we start with the idea that we don't know, we don't know it with certainty, what we think we know it with certainty. And it changes everything about it. I just remember having these experiences of thinking like, I need to change my tone of voice when I preach so that it's not a tone of voice of certainty, but it's a tone of voice of humility, which seems like, well, duh, but nobody was, that's not what I learned in my seminary preaching class. Yeah, I think David
0: Bosch, the great South African missiologist talks about like we need either bold humility or humble boldness because you have to have this passion, yeah. right, that yeah, I'm standing out there and 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 saying something. But yeah, you have to also balance it with humility. And that's the And these are things like I always think like things like preaching are a lot more akin to like stand-up comedy or something, right? Like that that's that's the, the, all the preaching I've done in the Last years of my life, I think I've related more to stand-up comedians than to philosophers or theologians or lecturers because you, you have this whole performative aspect, right, where you have to kind of um, the message is distinct from the medium and yet inseparable from it, right? And so you have to exactly what you're saying. Like it's interesting that you just knew that you had something about who you were, kinetically, vocally, just just the even a thing like tone can make all the difference, right?
1: Yeah. It's so funny now because I've preached, um, a couple times, times, uh, maybe, maybe four times in the last year at my, my old home church. Um, and there, in there a
0: Dina, in Dina, Minnesota, a, in
1: a Dina, Minnesota, lovely community. And then, uh, uh, so I, I'll preach and probably like you, I mean, I considered a performative act, which goes back to stuff I was reading about language, you know, speech act theory from J.L. Austin and Wittgenstein and stuff like that way back to Fuller um, and maturing as a public speaker so that I don't go up there with notes. You know, I'm, I don't have a pulpit in front of me. Um, and then, you know, every single time. The next Monday morning, I will get an email from one of the ad- administrative assistants at church saying, "Please send me your transcript or your manuscript. It's, please send me your manuscript because we're going to print it out and put it in the literature rack in the narthex." Yeah, I
0: don't. You're like I don't have that.
1: I'm like I don't. I don't have it. So then she emails me back and says, "Well, um, uh, can I transcribe it?" They, you know, the, the, the pastoral staff would like me to transcribe it because people have asked for your, the sermon. They want to, they want to read it again. I'm like, no, it's not, it's not, I can't the thing. Trans- I'm not going to let you transcribe It's not the thing.
0: It. <laughs> it, it is not the thing. And people don't understand. Like, so even the people that look like they're not reading or reading, I remember Rachel Maddow was on Howard Stern a couple of years ago. It was one of the best interview. I mean, she's a big fan of his, he's a big fan of hers. And, they, and he said to her, how much are you reading? She said, unless I'm with a guest, I'm reading everything. Yeah. She does not look like she's reading, right? Right. Because she's got a teleprompter and, and she's a good teleprompter reader. So, but the problem is, I think, with oral communication today, right? If you look like you're reading, because the people that we in media that are reading don't look like they're reading. So if you look like you're reading, people will immediately just tune you out. Because even the people that are reading don't look like they're reading. You know, we're Bill O'Reilly or that's Rachel right. Meadow. No, These people really are not point. they are reading but they don't look like it because they got a teleprompter and they're and they're skilled with the teleprompter and that kind of thing so like basically you you have to create this sense of connection and the less you're looking the more they're disconnected i mean it just immediately happens
1: and i grew up look i grew up with a preacher who um who wrote his sermons out and they were Beautifully written, beautifully written manuscripts that were then published and in the literature rack the next week and people would grab them and take them home to read them. And my parents, you know, in my parents' house there's still stacks of these old printed out sermons. Um so there's that tradition in the mainline church, but I think that is way less effective. And I think you're pointing out that like really good reasons for it. In fact, when the new now now the um my old youth pastor who's been on staff of this church was recently appointed to be the new senior minister of this church. And I went out to lunch with him and I said, when I was in youth group, I watched you give, and then I was his intern and et cetera. I watched you give hundreds of talks with just a few notes scribbled on a piece of paper and they were funny and engaging and endearing. You made people laugh and you made people cry when did you start reading a manuscript? And he's like, when I became an adult pastor and the senior minister said, you know, you probably should manuscript out your sermons because you get up there and you kind of, sometimes you get lost. And I just said, I, I said, my encouragement to you is to try to untether yourself from a manuscript and get back to, because I will get, I will, when I'm preaching now, I will forsake some of the preciseness of language that I would have the precision for, does not matter for it does a not matter or a real human connection with the audience. I would rather have no pulpit and no piece of paper between me and the, and the congregation than I would to make sure I nail all of my points exactly right. I would rather have some verbal miscues and have a connection with the audience, because I think you're exactly right. The audience has changed.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not... I mean, what amazes me, like Jonathan Edwards, people are getting slain in the spirit during these sermons, right? And I find it easier to read some a philosopher like Hegel sometimes than to read Edwards' sermons, because there's this weird like, 18th century style where they're point, sub-point, doctrine. I mean, th- these sermons, these sermons are like... And he's reading them, and yet... But their expectations were different. Sure, right? of so, course. So I th- mean, it's
1: not Even listen- like our parents w- when y- when we were growing up, our parents were watching Walter Cronkite read the news off a piece of paper in front of yeah. Him. And now, you know, now you can go on YouTube and you find the funny blooper reels when the teleprompter breaks. These local news. Like local newscasters, news anchors, they don't know what to do <laughs> when the news. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brain, yeah, they're yeah. just completely lost. It's it's awkward because they don't know how to ad lib or whatever. They are anchored to that scrolling text in front of them. Um. So it's it's uh I I agree with you. I think it would be fascinating to watch. Um. To have like one of those philosophers of language now. Uh, like a jail Austin or whatever, be watching stand up comedy. I don't know. Do you watch um the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I have not. I have not. I've heard great things about it. It's a great show, but the most fascinating character for me on that show, I think, is is the Lenny Bruce character. It's kind of a fictionalized version of Lenny Bruce, and it's caused me to do a, like a deep dive into you know not just reading his Wikipedia page, but like listening to audio of. Of his stand up routines and and stuff like that that caused him to get arrested, but how he what he did was so groundbreaking and brilliant with the spoken word in such a fraught time in American history, you know he was pushing boundaries and clearly brilliant, absolutely brilliant um, and you just wonder. I don't know i see I see like the some of these social justice preach it, it here's what here's what it's hard to do now is to do that with a sense of authenticity that doesn't just seem like an act because I see um images go and this off. is what
0: Trump has pulled off brilliant right like Trump will go to people. In parts of the country, he would never socialize with. He would never right. want to be caught there. Right. But he performs this act that looks and feels authentic. Like these rallies. I mean, the rallies are amazing. I mean, what he does. I mean, in those rallies is absolutely incredible. For There's those of us, an,
1: for those of us who are who are practiced public speakers, we can watch him at a rally. And you can watch him um, when he says something that gets a certain level of audience response. He repeats it and doubles down on it. You can watch him leave the teleprompter and go. Who are down
0: the? Who are the FBI? Oh, the Great Lovers, Struck and Page, the Great Lovers. He makes fun of their love affair, but it's like so. Like I, I'm, I, and again, I'm an intellectual guy. I see through all the stuff. I am enthralled.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember. Dude, I remember uh, very vividly there w- there were not many atheists when I was growing up in Edina Minnesota but down the street from us very close friends of ours who had kids our same age was um, like kind of a secular Jew mom married to a guy who was an avowed atheist he was the only atheist I knew and I remember going to his house he watched a ton of TV this guy Tim Doyle great guy Loved this guy he um he would watch Jimmy Swaggart every Saturday or every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning. And I would go, I remember being at his house one time, I don't know, I was maybe in middle school or high school and I'm like super Christian kid into youth group and planning to go to seminary and be a minister. And I asked him, I'm like, there's Jimmy Swaggart up there. This was pre Jimmy Swaggart's fall, you know, like when he had huge audiences and he's crying, you know, he's got a hanky in one hand with every sermon. He's weeping. And people are, you know, cheering him on and crying in the in the audience. And I asked him, I'm like, why are you watching Jimmy Swaggart? He's like, when I watch Jimmy, I, he said, I think it's fascinating. When I watch Jimmy Swaggart, I understand Hitler. Like, I see how Hitler did it, the power of the spoken word to move masses of people
0: we've made it 55 minutes without a hitler reference but there it is there's our hitler reference 55 minutes folks we hit it minute 55 we uh we uh we 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 had our hitler reference today there it is so so like okay so everybody is in covid lockdown i i wonder like i'm starting i mean i'm seeing projections i read so the things that blow my mind i saw two days ago there was a a, a meat-packing plant in Missouri that had 323 asymptomatic cases. All like,
1: asymptomatic. Yeah, and
0: asymptomatic. so they're just carrying carrying the virus all around. Spreading it. Uh, the, if we open up, right, like, fully, the projections are, like, I just saw that, that by the end of June, our death rate will be at, at 350,000. I, I just don't know. Like, I, I'm starting to wonder, like, these apocalyptic – are we in walking dead territory? Like, I mean, is this going to, like – and yet, at the same time, the stock market is banking on the future. I mean, we're podcasting, there's data and internet. And it, it, it's this weird thing where, like, it, it seems like the world is falling apart. And yet, this online virtual world is sort of maintaining it, it, its full force sort of continuity. I mean, this
1: is just really weird. It doesn't seem to me that we can continue to socially isolate until there's a vaccine. It, do, it doesn't but there is not going to be a vaccine i mean no, it's, it's gonna two be like years three at months. least yeah two to four years i, I don't see I, I my brother and i recently had this conversation with my mom who's 77 she's been totally isolated except from us for six weeks and she's like i really would like to go to the grocery store and we said go to the freaking grocery store because you can't stay in your house for two years mom If you're, and we said to her, you know, like, you get it, there's probably a 10% chance you die of it. If I get it, there's probably a 1% chance I die of it. If my kids get it, there's probably a one tenth of 1% chance that they die of it. But yeah, 77 year old woman, you know, with a history of bronchitis, she might die of it. But I'm like, what are you going to do? Stay in your house till you're 79 or 80? Like, go to the grocery store, wear a mask, wear gloves. Like, we're going to go up north to our family cabin. We're, we're going to figure out how to see my brother in Oregon. Um, I'm putting my kid on a plane tomorrow morning to fly to South Carolina to spend two weeks with his mom. We're just going to have to start to take some risks. And uh, I, I wonder, I just, you know, we're, we're, there have been other pandemics before, but there's never been a pandemic in a time of hypermedia.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, in the media, I mean, it's interesting. The thing that I think concerns me the most is like, okay, so Trump says something silly about, hey, maybe we could do a disinfectant and kind of clean ourselves out. So Fox kind of largely ignores it. Although some of the people talked about, it, but MSNBC runs it on a loop. And I'm like, I, I don't know, like everybody knows Trump says things like this. I don't know if a, that that's, helpful that what we need is like a lot of information because we're going to have to have a consent of the governed kind of moment, right? Where we say, these are the risks we'll take together. And I I just, I feel like the media coverage is not helping us get to the point where we can say like, these are the, here's how we'll move forward together. Like, here's how we'll, you know, kind of consider the measured risks. And and we're going to, because we're going to have to come up with something. It can't just be like, oh, if you want to keep the if you want to end the shutdown, you hate human life. Or if you want to maintain the shutdown, you know you don't care about the economy or the country. Like We're going to have to come to some kind of consensus of how we'll negotiate this stuff. And I, I just feel like the, the media conversation is not helping us.
1: That's because, like you're saying, there, there's going to have to be some kind of complex, nuanced decision. It's not like if you say, we're going to reopen, that you suddenly don't care about old people anymore. But there is something to be said like that in, in Minnesota, I think the median age of deceased from COVID-19 is 87 years old or something, 85 maybe. And that uh, 97% of the people who've died in Minnesota have had comorbidities. So then, you know, you look at just data, that's just data. And you look at that data and you think maybe herd immunity, That like the same could probably be said for chickenpox before there was a chickenpox vaccine. You know, there used to be like chickenpox parties. Let's just give these kids chickenpox. It's it's not going to... I mean, it might kill... It does... Chickenpox does kill some little kids, which is why we have a vaccine. You know, we don't have a vaccine for the common cold because the common cold doesn't kill little kids. But like chickenpox does kill some little kids. So you, you just... We're going to have to make a societal, but doesn't this, okay, this may be a tangent we have neither the time nor the listenership for, but doesn't it also, I'm not a huge fan of Alistair McIntyre and neo-Aristotelian thought. However, in After Virtue, his um, diagnosis of the problem with American Culture is that we're speaking so many fragments of different moral systems that we can't come to a consensus on an issue like, say, abortion. You know, like some people are using social contract theory from John Locke, other people are like quoting the Ten Commandments, other people are, you you know, like uh, uh, utilitarians. And and so, because we don't have uh, an agreed upon moral language we can never actually come to consensus on any issue and it seems the same for this calculation of like how many people is it okay for us to is it okay for x number of people to die or is it okay for us to shut off all nursing homes to visitors or like we don't have that uh we don't have uh, we're not singing off the same song sheet when we're making these decisions
0: yeah, and I think you know it's interesting because I look. That's a really good point. And I think like that, I would rather, that,
1: in some ways, have philosophers than all these. Just it's just numbers. It's just like I have a great deal of respect for Anthony Fauci, but he's just a numbers guy. You know what I'm saying? And I would love for there to be like an ethicist on that on the on the COVID. Well, they were saying this uh,
0: on the Commentary Magazine podcast, which I love. I listen, and they're pumping out content every day now, and it's a fantastic. Kind of center right. um Jewish, you know, they're, they're great. Like, but they were saying like with doctors, the doctors tell you, okay, like say, like, let's say you need to lose 30 pounds in a month. Well, how do you do it? Okay. You eat 800 calories a day, but then you say the doctor, I can't do that. (laughs) And like, but this is, but this is what the the public health lens looks like, right? Because if we're going to stop the virus, This is the prescription, and then it's sort of like the person that can't eat 800 calories a day for a month. Like, like that becomes a question: What can we do as a polity, as a public? Like, what can we handle? And you know, and and you're right. I think how do we figure that out? And 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 we're going to have to have some really awkward conversations about you know what can we do to maintain the the public health and also have a life. You know, like you would with your doctor. I mean, like ideally again, ideally your doctor can tell you all the things for health, but you're not going to probably cut out. Um, Red meat, scotch, twelve hundred calories. Da, da, da. So, so it's what can you do yeah. that gets you to relative health? And again, that that it's that's not meant to sound callous. It's just it is realistically like we're not that different collectively than we are as individuals. And you just wouldn't turn all of your life over to uh, a, a medical specialist that tells you, okay, I can kill the disease if you do all X X X Y Z. I mean, that's just. Like, that's the problem, right? Like, we're, what can we handle as a society?
1: Yeah, it, I mean, let, let's just take another social issue like abortion, where all the uh, you know the numbers show that abortions are down. Abortions are the lowest they've been since Roe v. Wade. Why? Well, because because first of all, high school kids are super well educated about um, you know sexual health. Two. Um, both contraceptives and like the morning after pill are readily available. And three most experts are saying because boys watch so much porn that they're and they're masturbating that they don't need they're not having as much sex. (laughs) Truly, truly,
0: there you go. go. Porn. This is the thing. But like, do but
1: like do pro-lifers celebrate the low numbers of abortions? Well, they don't because again, it's they're not looking to lower the number of abortions. They're they're looking to absolutely eliminate all abortions. And again, it's just not even, and, but then like do pro-choicers, are people who are pro-choice, are they celebrating the lower number of abortions? Well, no, they're not because then it looks, the optics are bad because it looks like they don't, that they're against abortion if they celebrate fewer abortions. It's just like, it's madness. It's madness because we don't have any kind of shared moral language for making decisions like this or deciding what's best for our society. It's why anti, you know, it's, it's why there's been a rise of anti-vaxxers, which has been obviously exacerbated by the internet because these people who wouldn't have been able to find each other before can now find each other. And this is a huge problem. I think with the internet, it's the same with these people who are going to state capitals with their assault rifles and protesting, you know, liberate Minnesota or liberate Michigan. The problem is that they can find each other now, whereas they right. wouldn't have and, been and it, then funders and, then have,
0: funders, and yeah. funders can find them. And because these things are fun, these are being funded. I mean, right. they're not, of course. Of course. It, yeah. It's interesting too. Like I've noticed like the, a lot of the, I mean, a simple thing, why certain States like Florida or other States like want to open up is you think they don't have income taxes. They don't have state income tax. Right. And so if you were in a blue state, um, you know, like uh, that has income tax, you, I mean, you're hurting, but like it, people are working from home and getting paychecks and you're still getting income, you know, revenue. But if you're a red state and you don't have any income tax, you're thinking you need well, we sales tax. Up, exactly. We need to, we need people to, to buy shit or else it's, it's over. I mean, right,
1: right, right. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know that I'm writing a, I'm writing a historical fiction novel about right at the end of the Roman Empire. And I do, you know, I do see parallels. I know you had a guest on who's an expert in that stuff a couple days ago. Um, Yeah, I do see parallels. I don't know. Going back to your very first question an hour and five minutes ago, uh, you know, I don't know if this isn't the end of, you know, the end of the American experiment. Um, And not because of COVID-19. I think that has just magnified issues that we that were already intractable issues. Right. issues it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a stress test. You take yeah. the
0: doctors, you know, you take the stress
1: test to see what yeah, your body you get on you the treadmill, you get right. your heart rate up and there's like, sorry, man, the damage to your heart is too great. <laughs> Enjoy your remaining days, but we can't fix you.
0: Well, Tony, uh, I don't know if the end of the experiment will happen or not. But if it does, you can hunt. So and you'll be well, you'll be advantaged because you'll be able to eat because you'll be able to, you know, get like. I've heard like somebody was telling me they were talking to people that like lived through the Depression years ago and they said there were no animals in the woods anymore because people were just running to eat them. Like, it's no, so, hey, right. Hey,
1: it's true. You are poised to eat. In yeah. The, the, the uh, great, the, the American like conservation hunting uh, movement of conserving and managing wild game started with Teddy Roosevelt, but really it was after the Great Depression that. Congress started passing, uh, act, you know, legislation that was meant to manage wild game so that there would be, you know, putting limits on, on the, uh, the amount of wild game you could hunt and take and things like that. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, man, you know, all the uh, meat rationing at all the stores, I, we have not bought any meat. Um, our freezer, we've been eating wild game last night we had, uh, elk tacos. So every night it's something, something wow. wild game. I might move to Minnesota. That sounds fantastic. Yeah.
0: Tony, thanks again. We'll do it again soon. And I will come on your podcast and talk about Bart and animals. That'd be great. Great to see you. Thanks, my friend. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.